0: The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivalled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer.
1: Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud, I'm Lyndon Kemkaren, part of The Spectator's broadcast team, and each week we choose three of our favourite pieces from the magazine and ask our writers to read them aloud. Coming up on the podcast this week... The Spectator's political editor, Katie Balls, on the tricky relationship between Labour and the unions. We hear from Olenka Hamilton on why Poland is having a row with Brussels over the number of migrants and asylum seekers it thinks it should accept. And Damien Thompson asks whether the Vatican is turning its back on tradition and beautiful art. First up is Katie Balls.
2: The Labour Party is preparing for power, and the unions are deciding what role they might play, friend or foe. Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, has already incited their ire by refusing to commit to accepting independent pay review body recommendations. UNITE, the second largest trade union... This week debated cutting ties with Labour and starting its opposition early. The motion was, in the end, rejected. The Labour Party has decided we want to win, insisted one party figure. The union hit back. It insisted that Starmer had been put on notice and that the union's support, including a still powerful get-out-the-vote operation, was not to be taken for granted. Sharon Graham, United's General Secretary, went further. Arguing the pre-election months represent the moment of maximum leverage for the union, where we can hold Labour to account. There is growing anxiety from the left that Starmer is abandoning Labour's traditions in the pursuit of power. The Tories are quick to try to exploit the spat. It shows who really pulls the strings, they said. This is a familiar line from the Conservatives. Under Jeremy Corbyn, the Len Unite leader Len McCluskey was regularly portrayed as a puppet master, Along with Carry Murphy, Seamus Milne and the former Communist Party member Andrew Murray, he was part of a group that made up the four M's or the Quad. Centrist Labour MPs blamed the Quad for everything from Corbyn's fiscal ineptitude to his lukewarm support for staying in the EU. Now there is a concerted effort to suggest the opposite. Starmer and his shadow cabinet are keen to show that they can stand up to the unions, which is why Sam Tarry has been sacked for the seemingly minor offence of giving interviews on a picket line. The boos that greeted Bridget Phillipson, shadow education secretary, on a national education union conference were also politically useful. They draw attention to the tearing off of a Corbyn-era pledge to abolish the school's inspector at Ofsted. Munal West Streeting, the Shadow Health Secretary, has been revelling in the criticism of the British Medical Association, offering this as evidence that he is willing to take the hard decisions in office. The unions see all of this quite clearly. Unite's threat to disaffiliate is intended to be a warning to Starmer not to go too far. They're running a risk of pushing the unions so far away that they cut fees or eventually all ties, cautions one trade union figure. But while Starmer would rather the unions stay in the tent, he is in a position to gamble. His party received more money last year from private companies and donors than it did from the unions. We've moved past the old days of trade union barons marching in and out calling the shots, says one party figure. Big Labour donors include the Blairite donor, Wahid Ali, and the recruitment mogul, Peter Hearn. Starmer, the long-time lawyer, is not a natural trade unionist. But his deputy, Angela Rayner, has close links to Unison from her time as an official there. It's one of the three most important unions alongside Unite and GMB. They are all affiliated, which means they donate money to Labour and vote on key party issues, both at conference and on the National Executive Committee. Other unions, such as the RMT, led by Mick Lynch, are not affiliated and have less influence. Holding the balance of power on the committee is crucial to having party rules in one's favour. It's allowed Starmer to take control of the candidate's elections with more input from central office, though some candidates will still have union support. In the snap election, the unions would gather and start going through who got what seat, explains one party old hand. While Reeves won't make pay pledges, Rayner's pledged for a charter on workers' rights, including gig economy workers becoming eligible for sick pay, has been broadly welcomed and there is a plan to bring it in in the first 100 days. This is a key part of the offer to the unions. At present, Unison, representing many health workers and carers, is generally the most supportive of the free unions, having been first to back Starmer in the leadership campaign. The GMB, representing workers in industrial sectors, is viewed as wielding the greatest influence on policy. This is in large part due to its leader, Gary Smith. He gets on with Reeves and wins admirers in unlikely places. Gary's a good guy, says one Number 10 aide, citing his pragmatism. The union is pro-defence, pro-trident and sceptical about green jobs, thinking their main contribution is in counting dead birds around wind turbines or filling London-based PR positions. The GMB influence can be seen in Labour softening its policies on new oil and gas licences, as well as scaling down the £28 billion a year plan for green investment. It needs to be industrial strategy, says one figure privy to conversations. That means the GMB is playing a role in the Labour debate about how far to row back on the Green agenda, mindful of the voter backlash against it in Europe. The Green rose we almost had at Labour conference as a logo is a long time ago now, says one party figure. It needs to be economy first, Green second. Ed Miliband, backed by MPs on the left of the party, is still pushing for the Green agenda to be a key priority but faces opposition. Ahead of each election, the Labour shadow cabinet holds a formal manifesto meeting, known as Clause 5, with its affiliated unions. In the past, it's seen union leaders, when they meet after the election is called, debate the various parts in the manifesto, and representatives call for changes and tweaks. Next year, Starm will likely feel emboldened to shrug many of these off. He has purged the Labour Party of Corbynism and moved it into a position where he's seen as being overwhelmingly likely to become Prime Minister. So for now at least, the unions need him more than he needs them. It could be that the big showdown with the unions, in which the Tories have placed so much hope, has come and gone. That was Katie Balls. Next is Alenka Hamilton. Another day, another
3: spat between Warsaw and Brussels... This time, Poland has declined to participate in the European Union's latest plan to relocate migrants and asylum seekers within the bloc, with countries who refuse being expected to pay 20,000 euros per refugee. Hungary has also voted against the pact, while Malta, Lithuania, Slovakia and Bulgaria have quietly abstained. On the 15th of June, the Polish parliament, The same went further and passed a resolution opposing the plan with the ruling Conservative Law and Justice Party, known as Peace, announcing a national referendum on the matter. The referendum will take place on the same day as the general election in either October or November this year. The same of the Republic of Poland, the resolution reads, expresses its strong opposition to the attempt to introduce mechanisms for the forced relocation of illegal economic migrants at the European level. We do not agree that the Polish state should bear the social and financial costs of the bad decisions of other European Union member states. The open-door policy, which was pushed through by Germany, violating the treaties, turned out to be a big mistake. The resolution also points out that Poland has allowed close to 7 million Ukrainian refugees into the country, 1.5 million of whom have stayed, since Russia's invasion. Why, they ask, should they take in more? Meanwhile, in Brussels... EU officials have accused Peace of misrepresenting the Migration Pact, saying no country will be forced to receive relocated migrants and that Poland would not have to pay solidarity payments to countries that house them because it has taken in so many Ukrainian refugees. Commissioner Ilva Johansson said, Poland's criticism of the EU's planned migration pact is incomprehensible and untrue. So what is really going on? Peace have always had a fraught relationship with the EU, which dislikes the party's populism, taking it to task on policies from its almost total ban on abortion to its supposed lack of democracy. To date, Warsaw owes Brussels 237 million euros in fines, which it has refused to pay, saying that Brussels has no right to meddle in Poland's domestic affairs. Brussels has also been on Poland's back for years, not just the past few weeks, about taking more immigrants. In 2020, the European Court of Justice ruled that Poland, Hungary and the Czech Republic had breached their obligations under European law by refusing to take in refugees. At the time, the Polish national broadcaster Telewizja Polska reported that the ECJ had decided ideology is more important than the safety of inhabitants of the community. Given this, PiS's disinclination to negotiate or engage with EU chiefs is unsurprising, but critics of the Polish government also feel that it suits PiS to be at odds with the EU, and that the party uses this bad blood to galvanise feelings of national pride and so boost its popularity among the electorate. Admitting to having voted for PiS in Poland is a bit like admitting to having voted for Brexit in the UK. Most people will deny having done so, yet somehow the votes in favour are cast in their multitudes, and clearly not just by uneducated, religious, rural simpletons, as the opposition parties would like us to think. In the case of peace, the party has now been in power for two terms. The people running peace, Ryszard Terlecki, Jaroslaw Kaczyński, are extremely clever politically. They sense the pulse of the nation, says Matthew Kielanowski, an immigration lawyer who advises governments on Polish affairs. It also helps that Poland appears to be thriving economically after those two terms, with its GDP per capita on course to overtake Britain's by 2040. Moments of genius which have infuriated their opponents over the years have included the decision to give every household with children in Poland 500 zlotys, around £150 a month per child. While this scheme was introduced with a view to boosting birth rates, it was clearly very gratefully received by this stereotypical Catholic country-dwelling voter who views Kaczynski as a benevolent father figure. Other successful tactics include feeding the Polish people's already strong sense of victimhood, a result of centuries of foreign occupation, which includes telling them that they are being exploited by Brussels. It is true that this demographic also particularly fears immigrants from other cultures and religions but they are not the only ones who are against the EU imposing migrant quotas on the nation. The more worldly poll, not such a rare beast these days, has been to France and Germany, countries which they know are ravaged by gang violence caused by mass immigration, along with the likes of Belgium and Sweden. It's a rare night in Stockholm that passes without some violent event, wrote Jonathan Miller in last week's Spectator. In Poland, however, 88% of people feel safe on the streets, according to a national poll by CBOS. Crime levels are extremely low and gangs do not exist. According to the same polling company, polls feel safer now than they did before peace came into power in 2015. The more worldly Pole has also probably played host to a Ukrainian refugee at some point in the last year. And there is the growing sense in Poland that this enormous humanitarian effort is being taken for granted by EU powers, who the government says have been very slow to help financially. Last year, Poland issued almost 1 million first residence permits to immigrants from outside of the European Union, more than any other EU member state. It is the fifth year in a row that Poland has topped the list. That Poland prefers to decide who it admits rather than being dictated to by the EU seems fairly sensible. While it does allow in a small number of people from North African countries, it does so on its own terms. Admitting Ukrainians was unproblematic. They are their neighbours, Christians, and they speak a similar language. Many of those from the west of Ukraine even speak Polish. And so there was never any question that they would assimilate with ease. Poles are also acutely aware that a war is raging close to their borders and the last thing they want at the moment is more trouble. The threat of the imposition of this migrant relocation scheme comes at a fraught time and Poles are highly likely to vote against it in large numbers in the referendum. Of course, this all seems to come as a great boon to peace who until now feared they may not win a third term. The past few years have not been plain sailing for them. A failing healthcare system following the pandemic Poor relations with Germany and Russia, the war in Ukraine, and the expectation has been that they will be forced into coalition with the so-called far-right Confederation Party. They are unlikely to lose power entirely because the opposition party, Platforma Obywatelska, is shambolic and divided by warring factions. The referendum, however, will inevitably boost turnout, which is likely to go in peace's favour. It seems that Brussels, yet again with its pressure on Poland, may have presented the right-wing government with a pre-election gift, says George Baczynski, a conservative commentator and advisor to the all-party parliamentary group on Poland. There are those, like Kielanowski, who believe that if Poland were to present its case calmly to the European Commission, it would be officially excused from the relocation scheme. It also might get the money it wants for taking in the Ukrainians. The biggest problem is the Polish inability to persuade, argue and negotiate on a level in Brussels, he explains. But clearly, in Peace's case, not getting on with the EU suits its agenda. By not wasting time on diplomacy, the party is free to concentrate its effort on electoral tactics at home. And ultimately, what can Brussels do if Poland flatly refuses to comply or even negotiate? Apart from getting very annoyed, not very much, says Kielanowski. Nothing in the EU can be enforced. They can think of some penalties, but if they find Poland for this, Poland will start fighting it in the European Court, which will take years, and eventually
1: Poland may win. That was Olenka Hamilton, and finally, here's Damien
0: Thompson. The Cathedral Church of the Holy and Undivided Trinity in the Cambridgeshire market town of Ely is one of the supreme achievements of European Gothic architecture. Its octagonal tower lifts the eye to a sumptuously restored wooden lantern from which Christ looks down in majesty. On the last Friday in June, his gaze fell on a congregation worshipping him at evensong Two hours later, as the Times reported, the cathedral was filled with, quotes, a very different crowd. Eight hundred people, wearing headphones, attended a nineteen ninety scene silent disco. They wore diamondy strappy heels and leather trousers, carried glue sticks, drank Chardonnay, yelled the words to Robbie Williams' hits and twerked in the nave to Beyoncé. Three DJs stood at the altar. The Dean of A. Reverend Mark Bonney said he hoped some of the ravers would return to the cathedral as worshippers. Bless! Where would the Church of England be without the naivety of its cathedral chapters? In 2019, Norwich Cathedral installed a helter-skelter as part of its mission to share the story of the Bible. In the same year, Rochester converted its central aisle into a crazy golf course to help visitors learn about faith. Please don't think I'm engaging in papist point scoring, although the rave-in-the-knave nave, helter skelter and crazy golf course were hideous misjudgments, The gullible cathedral authorities meant well. I wouldn't say the same about the Vatican's recent engagement with popular culture. In 1987, the photographer Andres Serrano produced his most famous work. Its title is Piss Christ. The photograph shows a crucifix plunged into a glass tank of the artist's own urine. Christie's, no less, described it as a legendary photograph exploited by right-wing conservative Christians to justify restrictions on government funding of subversive art. But not all Catholics find it offensive. On the 23rd of June, Serrano was photographed bumping fists with a Catholic bishop who used his other hand to give him the thumbs up. The venue was the Sistine Chapel. The bishop was Pope Francis. Serrano was one of 200 artists invited to the Sistine Chapel to celebrate the Vatican's collection of contemporary art. Francis congratulated them on their understanding of the richness of human existence. Another guest was the veteran British filmmaker Ken Loach, who in 2008 had to say this about anti-Semitism. If there has been a rise, I am not surprised. In fact, it is perfectly understandable because Israel feeds feelings of anti-Semitism. In 2021, Loach was expelled from the Labour Party because he belonged to an organisation, Labour Against the Witch Hunt, accused of anti-Semitism. The Vatican is well aware of this, just as it knows every detail of the Piss Christ controversy. To quote Bishop Paul Tai, Secretary of the Dicastery for Culture and Education, I think we all just have to work on the presumption of good faith of the artist, Serrano, who's trying to say something, challenge something, and may sometimes have to resort to strong measures to waken us up. Who on earth thinks faith can be awakened by seeing a crucifix floating in urine? Since I've met Bishop Ty, I can answer that one. An ambitious Irish church bureaucrat of the Bono generation who doesn't bother to hide his distaste for the traditional worship loved by his and my Irish ancestors. I spoke to two influential figures about this gruesome gathering. The first was one of the Catholic Church's most admired artists, whose conservative theology excluded him from the guest list. The other was a priest academic in Rome. Both, unprompted, made the same point. This is fundamentally a war on the beauty of the traditional Latin mass. The artist told me, I have seen thriving young congregations banished to church basements because they're attracted to tradition. Any artist who identify with that heritage is persona non grata, but blatantly anti-Catholic material is celebrated. The priests described a spirit of panic in the Vatican. Pope Francis is in an iconoclastic mood. He's just appointed Cardinal Designate Victor Manuel Fernandez as head of the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. Fernandez is an intellectually undistinguished Argentinian with radical views on sexuality. He's best known for a poetic reflection on the spirituality of kissing entitled Heal Me with Your Mouth that employs creepy imagery. How was God so unmerciful as to give you that mouth? There is no one who resists it, you witch. If the Pope is happy to make the author of those words the Church's head of doctrine, then you can see why he might welcome transgressive artists. But the whole situation is bizarre. Francis's own artistic tastes are cultivated and conservative. In his spare time, he listens to Furtwängler conducting Beethoven and Clara Haskell playing Mozart. Yet he shows no desire to beautify the liturgy. The music at papal ceremonies is execrable, inferior in every way to that of my local parish church. No one is arguing that the Catholic Church should draw inspiration only from conventionally pious artists. Serrano is a photographer of enormous gifts. Loach's best work is masterly. What sticks in the throat is the Vatican's recent insistence that only subversive leftist art can open our minds. But there is something far worse, and that is Rome's almost daily promotion of the work of the Slovenian mosaic artist Marco Rupnik. His depictions of Jesus, Mary and the saints were always disturbing. His figures have the dark, empty eyes of little grey aliens from 1950s comic books. Until this year, Rupnik was a Jesuit priest. He was expelled by the society following allegations of abuse against women too foul to be described. But he is still a priest, and day after day the Vatican tweets out details from his repellent Hallmark meets Roswell mosaics. Like Francis, Rupnik despises the old liturgy and its iconography, much of which he has literally erased. Bishops' conferences around the world have embraced cheap modernist art and infantile fonts as their preferred style. The Scottish Church's cod, Celtic images and music are an embarrassing example. And, unlike the Church of England's silent discos and crazy golf courses, the style is almost inescapable. Unless, that is, you take refuge in the banned Latin mass. Young Catholic friends of mine are retreating willingly to the basements and tiny chapels where they can experience the mass of the ages and there are no dad-dancing bishops ordering them to applaud the spectacle of their saviour floating in urine. One day, perhaps sooner than you think, they will reclaim the church.
1: Well, that was Damien Thompson and that's everything for this week. If you enjoyed these articles, why not pick up a copy of the magazine? I'm Lyndon Kamkaren, and please do join us again next week.